0: Our reading today is from Psalm 25. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. For you, Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful towards those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity though it is great. Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. They will spend their days in prosperity, and their descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord for only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all of my sins. See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me, because my hope, Lord, is in you. Deliver Israel, O God, from all their troubles. This is God's word.
1: If we've not met, my name's Phil, I'm one of the ministers on the staff here. Let's pray together as we look at this wonderful little psalm for a few minutes this morning. Our Father God, we thank you that you're a God who does not call us just to know things about you, but to know you, to have a relationship with you. We pray that you would stretch us this morning, that you would deepen and enrich our knowledge, our love of you and our spiritual maturity as we go through life with you as our God. Amen. How do you pray when life sucks? That's the the question I think this psalm really answers for us this morning. When fear or loneliness or guilt or confusion come to you, uh, whether it's the the global outside fear of uh, just a world that feels like it's in political meltdown, or whether it's the personal troubles that come to us. Now, the Psalms are full of uh, models of how to pray in distress and difficulty. In fact, there are more Psalms of lament, crying out to God, asking for his help, uh, complaining to him at times, than of any other sort of Psalm, which ought to give us some indication of what we should expect from life on earth. There are more Psalms of lament than any other sort of Psalm. And Psalm 25 is not the only one, but it does have some really important features that make me think this is a really crucial psalm for you and I to get our heads around, and for you and I to have in our, uh, if you like, in our spiritual armory, to defend us when life is hard, to take on our lips when we're in trouble. Now, it's an acrostic, which means that each verse of the psalm starts with a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, the... In part, that's just a structural thing. They, they put some of these acrostic psalms in as, a, as structural markers within the books of psalms. But there is also a sense, I think, in which the acrostics are, are more general. It's as if it's saying, look, here's an A to Z of how to pray when life is hard. A starting point. Not the only sort of prayer, not the only way to pray, but a good basic model to get our heads around, to get into our hearts. And the thing that strikes me most about this, this A to Z of prayer when life sucks is that the thing that's making him pray is verses 16 to 19. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. This is what's driven him to his knees to pray. He is lonely Afflicted, brought low by troubles of the heart, in anguish, in distress, crushed by the guilt of sin, weighed down by depression and danger. And yet, there are 15 verses before he gets there. That is really striking. When my life feels like that, that's the first thing I say if I bother praying. And yet, there are things he asks for, things he praises God for before he gets there that make all the difference in the world to how he prays let's get into the detail and we'll see what I mean you've got an outline on your service sheet just to to show you uh, how to navigate some sort of handholds for the psalm if you like and firstly he prays guard me guide me and be gracious to me guard me guide me and be gracious to me verses one to three In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. But shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Now, David's life wasn't that of your typical poet, uh, sitting in cafes, wearing a beret, drinking cheap wine, and making up rhymes that don't rhyme. He had a, a very different sort of a life from a typical poet. He spent most of his adult life at war or on the run. As a young adult, that was his basic experience. So he's not saying, you should trust in God, and I'm saying that from a position of comfort and security. He's saying, trust God, and I know what it is to live on the battlefield. I know what it is to be a fugitive, on the run with people who want my blood. But, he says, through it all, I have found that the God of the Bible is a God in whom you can trust when life is at its worst. He is a God we can trust when the storms come when things are dark and difficult. He is a God we can trust in a week when we've seen the tragedy in Nice and the total chaos in Turkey. The wonderful thing is he drives it further in verse two by saying, my God, not just our God, but my God. And I wonder if you know God in that way. I wonder if you have that same confidence Anybody who calls themselves a Christian, this is your right. It's the privilege that is held out to us by Jesus Christ. If we put our trust in him, we can say to God, not just our God, but my God. God has revealed himself personally as a personal God, and he wants you and me to know him in that way, as the God who loves us and walks with us. So he declares his trust in God in verse 1, he cries out to God in verse 2, and then he declares his trust again in verse 3. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. Shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Whether or not the Almighty God rescues us from the enemies we face right now or whether he allows us to face enemies, ultimately we know that we will be eternally vindicated, that God will judge and destroy all wickedness. And God will bring his people into billions of years of safety and joy in his paradise kingdom. So verse 1 to 3, guard me. Then verses 4 to 5, in many ways the dominant theme of the psalm, guide me, guide me. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my savior and my hope is in you all day long. Now, we may not know what it is to have our life threatened by physical enemies hunting us down, but all of us certainly share in David's desperate need for guidance. Life is just confusing, and the truth is we often make a mess of things. Our society loves the Frank Sinatra types who do it my way, but David says, I long to do it God's way. He wants to walk in God's path. He wants to learn God's truth and teaching. Now, we often get confused about this, and it's worth just seeing. When you look at verses 4 to 5 and then at uh, verses 8 to 9, which continue the theme, asking for God's guidance here is not a request that God send him a message about which job to take. It's not a request for God's uh, telling him what to do with the minutiae of life, with uh, how to make decisions. It's, it's a request that God would change his character It's a request for holiness. It's a request for help to obey what God has clearly told us to do. He knows, verse 5, that God alone is his savior and hope. And so he wants to go God's way. He wants to run his friendship according to God's ways. He wants to save, spend, and give his money according to God's ways. He wants to conduct his work, his friendships, his family life according to God's ways. In other words, the dominant concern for David, the thing that just drives him, is I want to live in a way that pleases you, God, so help me to obey you. But why do you bother praying that? It's clearly written in the Bible, so why pray for something where you can just read it? You know, David, stop praying for it and just get on and read your Bible. What are you, what are you blathering on about? The thing is, David's not a fool. He knows that walking in God's ways requires more than just that the knowledge of the Bible, the knowledge that God has given us, is, gets up here into my head. He knows as well as uh, head understanding, he needs heart conviction. He needs the desire to do what God has said, not just the knowledge of what God has said. And he needs an understanding as well of, look, the world is complicated. God's word is clear, but the world is complicated. So how do I live out what God has clearly said in a world that is just baffling at times? So when he prays, guide me, he's asking God to help him to put into practice what God has said in his word. And he's asking God to help him so that his heart desires to do what God has said. He's asking for help to understand that not only is God's word true and clear, but it is good and rich and right. But of course, uh, David doesn't always do what God says. So the same man who prays so passionately, God guide me, then turns to pray, God save me. Because he knows that just as much as he passionately desires for God's guidance, there are other times when he passionately desires to ignore God and go by the desires of his own heart. And so in the words of this psalm, he asked God to be gracious by forgetting and remembering. Verses 6 to 7. Be gracious by forgetting and remembering. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Now, God does not have senior moments. So why is he asking God to remember something? Well, basically, it's a way of saying, God, there are two undeniable realities out there. I am sinful. You are loving. Please, when you're deciding whether to accept me, don't look at my sin. Act in the light of your love, your mercy, your compassion. He's using remember in the way a teenager does. When they say, look, remember you promised me if I didn't get a tattoo and pass my exams, you'd give me driving lessons. Remember... It's, it's saying, it's not that I think you've forgotten. I just want to make sure you do what you said you'd do. It's a plea to God. Act on the basis of what you've said you will do. Now, why does he go for the sins of my youth here? It's an odd thing to mention. Uh, what, you know, are, the, are the sins of his youth less serious than the sins of his old age? I don't think anything in the Bible tells us that the sins you commit when you're young are worse than the sins you commit when you're old. I suspect it's simply that the sins of his youth are more red-blooded. They're a bit less subtle. So often the sins of old age are heart attitude sins that can lie hidden, secret, just as festering and ugly, but much more subtle and less publicly obvious. So it's not that the sins of his youth are more serious. They're just a whole lot more obvious. And so they're probably way more heavily on his conscience. And so he prays, do not remember the sins of my youth. Now, at this stage in the history of God dealing with relating to sinful people like us, there is no obvious answer as to precisely how God can forgive sin. It has something to do with sacrifices at this stage. But what we do see here is why, not so much how, but why God would do it. And it is because of who he is. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. In other words, he says, forgive me because of who you are. He is a God of mercy and love. Now what that means is no one has to champion your cause before God. If we want God to forgive us, we don't need to find somebody else to convince God who is unwilling. Look, can you convince God to forgive me because he's just really unwilling to forgive. No, the motivation to forgive you and me comes from within God's own heart. And that is wonderful. Guard me, guide me, be gracious to me because of who you are. Then secondly, in verses 8 to 15, in the central section, he prays, well, he doesn't so much pray, does he? He praises God. He reminds himself what God is like, and he declares God is faithful, so those who fear him are blessed. His confidence to pray to God is grounded in what he prays about God in these verses. Uh, Firstly, verses 8 to 10. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful towards those who keep the demands of his covenant. He can ask God for help and guidance because God is the sort of God who loves to give help and guidance. And because God is good, he guides. Now that is a lesson I think well, for myself, it's one of the the lessons it took longest to learn as a Christian. That God is good to give me his laws, his rules. Our default position is, God, leave me alone, you'll only spoil my fun. We tend not to say it quite so bluntly, but that's how we think. God, leave me alone, you'll only spoil my fun. But that is because we have failed to realize that God's guidance, well, it's like a lot of things, but one thing it's not is spoiling our fun. It's like a you're in a minefield and you've been given a map that shows where the mines are. Now, you can live with freedom or obedience. But who has the richer life? The one who lives in freedom and goes, <laughs> or the one who lives in obedience and follows the map? Or his, uh, his word, his guidance is like a recipe that if you follow it carefully, produces a delicious meal. Or it's a, an instruction manual. Imagine... Um, uh you leave london you sell your tiny one-bed flat don't this is just an illustration don't plan on doing so it's illegal in in this church the uh, but you you have to leave london and go to uh north scotland um and so you you sell off your your tiny one bedroom flat which you've paid for a quarter of the mortgage on and you get 55 acres in Scotland and uh, and as you're wandering the grounds of your of your place in Scotland you find there's an old garage and and within the old garage there's under a tarpaulin you pull it off to find uh, the wreck of a Ferrari 250 GTO a couple of million pounds worth of car lying with a uh, birds nesting in the engine and and just and beside it, in a, in a box, is the instruction manual for how to build a Ferrari 250 GTO. Now, you can do two things at this point. As a bloke, you can say, instruction manuals, ha! And just have a tinker and work out how to build the car yourself. Or you can follow the instruction manual slavishly, carefully, obeying letter by letter what is written in it. Again, who has more freedom? Well, I guess the person who ignores the instruction manual. Who do you think enjoys driving the Ferrari more? The person who follows the instructions. God's guidance is not designed to stop us from having fun, but to enable us to live life to the full, to rev the engine of life, and to, to run fast and free to live as we were meant to live, without all the destructiveness and decay and pain that sin brings into our lives. And so in a confusing world, it is a wonderful blessing to be able to pray to a God who, who guides, who tells us what to do. Now, structurally, our eyes are meant to be drawn to verse 11 in this psalm. Uh, You didn't have highlighters or uh, italics or bold. So the only way that you could um, highlight something in Hebrew was structurally. And so you'll see that uh, on the outside of this psalm, in verses 1 to 7 and 16 to 22, you've got prayers to God in distress. And then inside that, in verses 8 to 10 and 12 to 15, you have declarations, not prayers, but declarations about God. And then right in the middle, at the heart of the psalm, is verse 11. At the heart of the psalm is the question that really is at the heart of the Bible, the most important question of all of life. Why should God accept you? Why should the great, perfect, holy, consuming fire, immense above all things creator God, welcome you? Why should he listen to your prayers? Why should he help you when you are in trouble? Because my sins aren't that serious, especially not when compared with some people out there. I mean, read the news, God. No, verse 11, David says, my iniquity, that is the wrongdoing that comes from my corrupted desires. My iniquity is great uh, because I feel really sorry for what I've done. Uh, because, look, God, if you forgive me, I'll, I'll give loads of stuff. I'll do loads of stuff for you. I'll really make up for it. No, he says, for the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity. So, yes, we pray to God because he loves us. That's a good reason to pray to God. But ultimately, the ultimate confidence that you and I should have as we pray to God is that he has staked his name on forgiving those who turn to him. In other words, God has said, the honor of my name will be proven because I save people who put their trust in Jesus Christ. And that is wonderful. It means when we're hoping God will save us, when we're worried about whether, uh, given all my sinfulness and my stupidity, God can ever get me all the way to heaven, trusting in him year after year after year. I don't have to look inside and, and hope that I'm worth it. I don't even have to hope that that God will love me enough. I just have to hope, God, will you let your name be dragged through the mud? Will you allow Satan to say, you are a loser and a failure, God? There is no way the God of the universe will allow utter failure to be stained on his name. Ultimately... You and I can have absolute confidence that God will save because God has said, I stake the honor of my almighty name on the fact that I will save and preserve and keep sinners who turn to me. Uh, John Newton, towards the uh, the writer of the the hymn Amazing Grace, towards the end of his life, as he was asked about his assurance that he would make it safely to heaven, he said, I know two things. I'm a great sinner and he is a great saviour. Because of who he is, and because of the honor of his name, he will save those who turn to him. And having built into this heart in verse 11, he then uh, moves back out to to declare again about the greatness of the Lord. And now he considers not so much the character of God, but the blessedness of those who've done this, who've, who've staked their lives on God. Verses 12 to 15. Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. They will spend their days in prosperity, and their descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. So if we turn to the Lord, we enjoy his instruction, verse 12. We've looked at that, his blessing, verse 13. Knowing him as our God, verse 14, and his rescue from danger. Now, I guess those of us who have been following God for a number of years will be able to testify that God is often abundantly good to us here and now. But this is not a promise that if we trust in God, we'll never know hardship or difficulty in this life. It's not a promise of that, but an assurance that God is watching over all of life and will bring us safely to his eternal paradise where there will be true and lasting pleasure unbroken forevermore. And now finally, we get to the thing that drove David to his knees in the first place. He's prayed, guard me, guide me, be gracious to me. Because God is faithful, he knows his people are blessed. And finally, he prays, turn to me, comfort me, deliver me. But how different these verses sound when we've walked through, when we've prayed through verses 1 to 15. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope, Lord, is in you. I love those verses. Here is a God who does not just care about your eternal salvation, but even the troubles of your heart. Do you notice how confused things seem to be? Uh, I mean, what is the problem that David is facing here? I've been wrestling it with, with it this week. Is it that he's assailed by enemies, or are his enemies another way of talking about his sin, which he also seems to talk about? It just—it doesn't make much sense, to be honest. But I think, well, frankly, life doesn't quite a lot. And so often, our problems aren't easily uh, split up. I I have a problem. It is just external issues in my life at the moment. There's stuff that's happening to me that makes life hard. Or, look, at the moment, it is just my own stupid folly and sin. That's the problem. So often, it's life is messy and confused. A broken relationship is painful. When someone breaks a relationship with us, It's very painful, but it is so much worse when my sin, my bad temper or unfaithfulness has contributed to the breakup. Unemployment is a terrible thing to to bear, but it is made far worse when sinfully I've tied my entire sense of self-worth to my job. Losing a parent to cancer or heart attack is a brutal thing to hit you, but it is so much more bitter when... Sinfully, I've been holding a grudge against my parents and refusing to forgive them for years. And so David, in the confusion of life, prays for relief from his troubles and forgiveness for his sins. And these are wonderful, comforting verses for for us to be able to pray. But the truly extraordinary thing in my mind is, is that when you pray to the God of the Bible, you don't just pray to a God who cares about your loneliness. And who cares about the troubles of your hearts. You pray to a God who knows what it is to have loneliness and troubles of heart. Because we pray to the God who became the man Jesus. And he knew these things. At the end of his life on earth, as he faced his hour of greatest need, his supposed good friends deserted him. And he was left all alone. As he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was in such anguish of heart, such desperate trouble and fear and depression, that it says that the sweat came off his head like great drops of blood. He who never sinned even knows what it is to be weighed down by the guilt of sin. Because on the cross he took all of our sins on himself. The shame and the punishment that's due us was heaped on him. So yes, Jesus knows exactly what you and I feel when we feel these verses. The God of the Bible is not just the great far-off creator, wholly other from us creatures, perfect in power and, and unapproachable in holiness. He's also the God who has come near to us, the God who has made himself one of us, the God who has walked in our experience of life, and therefore he is the God who can empathize with us when we pray to him. And that is an enormous encouragement to you and I, as we seek to pray. Perhaps best of all, we see in his resurrection that when Jesus cried out to God, verse 21, may integrity and uprightness protect me, my hope is in you, Lord, that the prayer was answered. God can bring us safely, even through death, to eternal life. We will never be put to shame if we trust in him. Now, bizarrely, the final verse doesn't fit in the alphabet structure in the Hebrew language. It's just a random tack-on by a later editor, which is a bit odd, really. Why would you do that? David's written a perfectly good psalm, and then some later editor, when they were compiling the psalms together to be used at the temple in Jerusalem, decided, you know what, I think I'm going to write another verse at the end. Why'd you do that? I think it's really important that this happened. See, what he did was he wrote a verse that says, deliver Israel from all their troubles. This is a psalm of David that starts, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. And yet the priest recognized that David was the king of Israel. And what David wrote in this psalm describes a relationship with God that's not just of David, but also for David's people. David represented the people as their king. And his relationship with God in some way was something that they could share in. If God would protect David, then in a similar way, his people could rely that he would protect them too. And David in the Psalms is a shadow of the Messiah, the anointed king who points to Jesus. And you and I share with Jesus' relationship with God in a far richer way. We're not just citizens of this king. But we are described as united to Jesus. We are in him by faith, treated like him, blessed through him, sharing in his relationship with God. And so you and I, if we trust in Jesus, we can take these words on our lips because they are Jesus' words. Life is hard and difficult and full of disappointment and confusion as well as beauty and laughter. And we're sinful and we make messes of our lives at times. And this psalm shows us you and I can turn to God at those times. We can turn to God when it's our fault and when it's not our fault. We can turn to God knowing that the God of David, the God of Psalm 25, is with us today. He is a God of compassion and forgiveness and guidance. And we're fools to turn to anything else. But the great value and power of psalms like this is, you know what, you and I can turn to God without using a psalm like this. You don't have to pray Psalm 25 when you're in distress. You can just pray to God. But the psalms, they take us somehow deeper into relationship with God. Um, uh, It's been great having Daniel Nasnat here for the year in London from Rwanda. And Daniel's had the great privilege of, uh, of living in London. He's living in Kennington, nothing against Kennington. It's a lovely place. But imagine if his first day in Kennington, uh, instead of, uh, he was just told you know what, just get to know London, just have a wander knowing nothing he just wanders around Kennington, you know, he he might find the Imperial War Museum and think London has a lovely museum, he might find Kennington Park and think um, London has a lot of uh, well, actually it's changed hasn't it over the years, it's no longer a lot of junkies actually, it's actually quite a nice park, huh? he might get as far as a, uh, you know, elephant and castle roundabout and think London is a place I never want to drive but, uh, but he'd only get so far if he's just left to explore on his own But if someone who knows London inside out takes Daniel round, they can show him uh, the beauty and the history and the architecture of, of a great city. And you and I can just pray to God. We can just pray, God, look, I'm in real trouble. Help me. And that's a wonderful privilege. And we'll find all sorts of great things when we do so. But when we turn to the Psalms, when we pray through the Psalms of lament in our distress, we're taken deeper through a much richer experience. We're taken actually far lower into distress and depression and darkness but we're also taken on the journey of faith by people who have walked it and come out the other side. The Psalms will take you on a richer, deeper spiritual journey when you pray through them than you'll ever get on your own and it is our privilege as followers of God that these words can be our words. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for The words of this psalm but we thank you most of all that David's words through Christ are our words and we pray as we face difficulty and confusion and distress that we would know the comfort and the joy of being able to share in this relationship with you help us therefore not to be driven away from you by difficulty but to you amen